If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 193 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we talk with Ray Schroeder, Associate Vice Chancellor for Online Learning and Founding Director of the Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at the University of Illinois Springfield. He's also the Founding Director of the National Council for Online Education at the University Professional and Continuing Education Association. So, Salisa, what do you and Ray talk about? Well, we cover a lot of ground because Ray has a real depth of experience. He started teaching in 1971, and then he got into online learning in 1997. So he's got decades worth of observations and experience and insight to share. We talk about workforce development issues and the skills gap, as those are issues that Ray is really passionate about. He sees them as job one and imperative for learning businesses. The role of continuing ed and online learning and learning businesses is significant as we move into what Ray calls the age of the 60-year learner, barring a phrase from Hunt Lambert of Harvard. But it's also a concept that you and I have talked and written about, Jeff. Um, It started out for us as the other 50 years, and uh, that's actually grown as life expectancy keeps inching up. And if folks at home want to play buzzword bingo, I'd say get your cards ready because I think Ray and I hit on all the biggies, AI, virtual reality, augmented reality, badges, blockchain, curation. Well, it's clear just from the, the titles that he's uh, carrying and the things that he's founded uh, that uh, he truly does have a lot of experience, uh, a lot of depth, and it sounds like you did cover a lot of ground. So let's definitely get rolling with this interview with Ray Schroeder. Hello, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today I'm joined by Ray Schroeder. Ray is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Online Learning and Founding Director of the Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at the University of Illinois Springfield. He's also the Founding Director at the National Council for Online Education at the University Professional and Continuing Education Association. Ray is widely recognized as a leading expert in online education, and he brings both deep knowledge of and a passion for advancing the field of online education. He's been engaged in online learning since 1997, and he's built a very successful program with more than 20 online degree and certificate programs at the University of Illinois Springfield. He's also a consultant, a speaker, and an author. Ray, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you so much, Alyssa. It's uh, great to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. As do I. And so, you know, I had to condense um, a long lifetime of work and and all that you've done into just a few sentences. I want to give you a chance here at the beginning to highlight anything else that you would like for listeners to to know about yourself and your work as we then begin our conversation. Okay. Well, only briefly that this has for me been an exciting uh, career. You know, I started teaching at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in 1971. So, uh, you know, it's 48 years and uh, I've seen so many changes in higher education, in learning, in technology. And so it's been very rewarding for me to be part of that process over those decades. 
Well, that's great. And I think all that perspective and experience um, will be uh, wonderful to hear as you um, answer some of these questions that I've pulled together for you. And I know one place I wanted to start is that in a recent article called Five Key Trends for Professional and Continuing Education Leaders in the Next Five Years, and we can link to that article in the show notes. In that article, you really assert that continuing education, professional development, and online programs have become of central importance to traditional universities. You know, they, they started more at the periphery, but now they really are key. So would you just give us the broad strokes of the changes that have caused that move from the periphery to the center? Sure. You know, in the earlier days, I'll say 80s, 90s, um, Continuing ed and online ed, as it developed then later in the late 1990s, was really on the outside. It was not the main business of higher education at colleges and universities. It was nice to do little community things and show that you were engaged. You know, and there were some excellent programs. I'm not to say that there were not, but but broadly in central administration the attention was not there. The attention was to the traditional high school graduate coming to a college or university. And over the last 25 years, that has changed dramatically. You know, what we used to call the traditional college student is no longer. That's a smaller minority of the students in higher education. The The average age is 25 or older. The, uh, uh, the students, many of them are uh, already in a career and looking to advance in their careers. So the student population has changed. At the same time, um, there's really been, there have been other changes. And I kind of look at this as, uh, if you can uh, imagine, a virtual Venn diagram with three circles. That, and and uh, continuing education and professional ed is right at the center, at the overlap. So the first circle would be student demand. You know, students today are demanding results from their investment in higher ed, and they're paying far more than ever. And, and we could talk about that, but it's a, a long story. The, you know, the bottom line is higher ed costs much more than it used to, and, uh, and students are paying throughout their careers, uh, you know, with a total uh, uh, debt up in the trillion Uh, $1.5 trillion in the United States. So students want to see results in terms of employment, in terms of careers, in terms of salary. So that's, that's one influence, and that's changed in the last 20 years. Employers now are demanding more. They, they say that the graduates of today that they're seeing are falling short in communication skills, computational skills, leadership, creative thinking, critical thinking. They're, they're really looking for us to fill in those gaps so that the uh, new hires can hit, hit the road running. They can, they can start right away. And then finally, um, recently uh, came the announcement that now eight straight years we have dropped in enrollment at colleges and universities uh, across the country. And in fact, uh, uh, there still has been growth, but the growth has been in online. The growth has been among what we used to call those non-traditional students, that is those job-holding career student, uh, career uh, uh, first people 
who are seeking to advance their careers. So universities are seeking now to hit those new enrollment areas, um, no longer just the high school, and but increasingly the lifelong learner or Hunt, Hunt Lambert of Harvard uh, calls them a 60-year learner. Well, those three changes, that is student demand, employer demand, and university enrollment drops, all combine to make universities uh, administrators see that most of their learners are ones that they have not been serving well. And so they're pulling in the online units, the continuing unit, the uh, uh, professional ed units to the mainstream and putting them right under the provost so that they can uh, put an emphasis on that growth area. I might add that the lifelong learner, that 60-year learner is a phenomenon that really is taking hold. With tech advances in our economy, we're seeing much more rapid job expirations, that is jobs going out of date, on the order of, for many employees, every five years. So these employees need to upskill, they need to update continuously if they're going to be continuously employed. We're approaching this 100-year life expectancy in this country. So we're going to be able to expect that people are going to work into their 70s and 80s. So once again, there's, there's an expansion over time of the need for this continuing professional online uh, service to, uh, to employees. Well, thank you for explaining sort of uh, the, those three circles and, and what's been driving this move um, to put uh, continuing education, professional development, online learning really at, at the center of uh, universities. And, and I think you've begun to, to get into this because employer demand was one of those circles that you just mentioned. But I would love to get your take on workforce development issues and the role of learning businesses. So those uh, continuing ed programs at academic institutions, associations, training companies, edupreneurs, what should those types of learning businesses be doing um, in addressing those workforce development issues? Yeah, workforce development is job one for all of those categories you mentioned. You know, uh, in fact, this is really, I, I commonly call it the moral act of the 21st century. Um, you know, I'm in Illinois, and uh, we happily claim Abraham Lincoln as uh, uh, one of ours. But back in his administration in 1864, I believe, he uh, uh, signed the first moral act, which set up land-grant institutions. And the concept even way back then was to have institutions provide education for agriculture, engineering, mechanical, and other useful, as they call them, useful professions. And uh, that's where we are now. But we're doing it electronically. We're doing it digitally. We're doing it in a concerted um, way. And that's really what taxpayers are looking for, prospective students and their families, and employers are demanding this. This is how do we integrate this rapidly changing economy and the infusion of artificial intelligence, quantum computing, of emerging technologies into our, uh, into our economy? How do we keep our skilled workers um, prepared for that, constantly evolving with the advancements. If we fail, there are 
hundreds of alternatives out there. And this is where the savvy entrepreneur, edu entrepreneur, if you will, or edupreneur, as you said, uh, can really take a lead. Uh, Ryan Craig uh, authored a book called A New You, Faster and Cheaper Alternatives to College. And he asserts there are better alternatives coming than the traditional um, general education, four-year plotting um, kind of uh, program for students. And, and the difficulty there is that our students are, are anxious to, to begin to fill these jobs and the needs for these jobs are different. You know, in fact, I even came across a new website called Alternatives to College, and they have 200 examples of ways to get a good job without a college education. Mm. Totally legitimate. I mean, I think I think that's very important. In fact, I recently posted a link that of, of 16 degree certificates, so short of the baccalaureate, that start at $70,000 to $100,000 a year. And the average college graduate uh, receives just short of $50,000 a year. So when you're looking at the payday at the outcome at the end of the learning experience, uh, you know, there are alternatives that are very effective. And then there's a growing number of companies that no longer require the baccalaureate. Apple, Google, IBM, Bank of America. Um, there are many, many more. Uh, they're beginning to recognize that we're in a more specialized employment environment in which we're expecting upgrades and upskilling every three to five years. So they're willing to waive the baccalaureate if they can get people with the personal values and attributes that fit their corporation. So if higher education, particularly the universities, want to continue to hold uh, the leading role they've enjoyed in preparing the workforce, they've got to change. They've got to become agile and responsive to the needs of the employers. Well, great. Well, thanks for kind of pulling together um, that picture of what's uh, coming and bringing to bear on um, the, the choices about learning that that individual learners face, and then, of course, um, organizations providing that learning are facing. If your learning business is looking for a partner to help you execute on the choices you're making about how to best serve your learners, we encourage you to check out our sponsor. Com Partners helps learning businesses conceive, develop, and fulfill their online education strategy. Their solutions begin with Elevate LMS, an award-winning learning platform that provides a central knowledge community and drives learner engagement. To extend the value of Elevate, Comp Partners provides a wide range of online education services, including curriculum design, instructional design, fully managed webinars, webcasts, live stream programs, and virtual conferences. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash compartners. And now, back to the interview as Salisa asks Ray about the role of AI in learning and education. And so if we pick up a bit and look at some of the the other large trends that are, that are happening in the space. Um, I'd like to ask you about artificial intelligence because I know you moderated a panel recently called Is Artificial Intelligence the Future of Education? And you did it at the IMS Global Leadership Institute. And so give us the answer, you know, is AI the future of education? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, certainly there's a huge role 
for AI in our future. But what a great panel that was. We had top leaders from IBM, Google, Georgia Tech, McGraw-Hill, and strategic education. That was a, a great discussion of where we are today, where we're going to be in three to five years, and the challenges that we're going to have to uh, overcome as we move forward. AI is already playing a role. I mean, you know, artificial intelligence is such a broad field. We talk about uh, deep learning and uh, machine learning. And, you know, there are so many parts, visual uh, recognition and, uh, you know, the interfaces between human and computers interacting together. So, so much of that is driven by AI that it's behind the scenes and we don't really know it. However, um, AI is providing a prominent role on working with big data. And there's been a big emphasis on really using data-driven you know, decision-making in higher education. Um, so what AI does for us, it allows us to handle larger data sets to make um, accurate predictions based on trends in those data sets and to learn from its prior predictions and what turns out in reality. So selecting students, placing students, informing advisors of strengths and weaknesses and the like, all of those are driven by AI. More directly though, in the teaching and learning process, AI is the engine for adaptive learning. When we talk about adaptive learning, that's an instance where um, the computer um, or the program, the algorithm in artificial intelligence uh, can uh, over time uh, determine what the students' learning levels are, where there are deficits, where they're more advanced, and it can, can customize a path of learning rather than what we've been doing for so many years. And for me, it's been almost half a century where you kind of aim at the middle of the class and you disappoint uh, those advanced <laughs> learners and you confuse the learners that aren't there yet. So uh, what AI can do is to make sure each student gets a personalized learning experience. And then there's Asha Cole. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan. He's a professor at Georgia Tech. I've had the good fortune to share lunch with him a couple of times. He's the fellow who uh, developed what he called uh, uh, Jill Watson. Um, he was teaching and continues to teach artificial intelligence for Georgia Tech, um, teaching a class of 400 students. He had seven TAs, one of them, Jill, who... Uh, kind of lag behind the first year he did this, that was four years ago, um, but got better. And by the end of the semester, she was nominated for TA of the year. But of course, as the name implies that she was a Watson computer program, an AI program that answered the questions of the students in the class. This was part of their online masters of computer science, but it's at scale. And so the, the importance of having a smart, in quotes, a smart uh, program as a teaching assistant is enormous. Probably the most important part is it saves the faculty members time because so much of the time is eaten up by repeating what you've mm -hmm. said once and again, and when's the midterm, how long's the paper, will you accept this, is that okay? And, and being able to answer those, but also to answer content questions. So by developing 
machine learning into deep learning, and uh, and this program, this algorithm, did that. It was able to now begin to answer questions about content and would respond when it had the program ascertained a 97% certainty that it had the right answer. If it didn't, it would refer to the professor, and then it would learn from the answer. And so you have that cycle. Well, Ashok is developing that um, so that it can be affordable on uh, uh, different platforms, not just Watson, so that uh, uh, commercial entities, uh, middle schools, even high schools, colleges can afford to have this kind of assistant, which really makes teaching much more efficient. So the faculty member can devote their time to those students who are truly struggling and not looking for kind of the simple answers. I would say AI chat boxes, uh, similar to Jill, but chat boxes for advising and tutoring, certainly scheduling, this can all be done better. <laughs> Having been an advisor for a couple of decades, oh my, you know, what a nightmare that was <laughs> on paper back in the 70s, you know, all the requirements and prereqs and schedules. Well, now all that's done by AI and I think done much better. Academic advising, so looking ahead at schedules and making sure that everything fits moving forward. And then, then there's a the whole area of um, assistance, intelligent assistance, both for faculty members and for students. So for faculty members can gather data from the web and elsewhere and help you uh, prepare material. But what we will see, I'm sure, within the next year or two, if not already, are student assistants to whom, let's say like an Alexa or a, you know, a Google Home, you can say, hey, Google, um, I have a paper due in 30 minutes. It has to be a 10-page paper with uh, eight uh, annotated uh, resources in the bibliography. And once again, I, I need that in 15 minutes so that you can print out a copy and I'll carry it to class. So please do that. And... Well, there are, there are programs already that, that do that kind of thing. So then the question arises for the faculty member, um, how do you make assignments? And is that appropriate? I mean, maybe it's like, you know, I date myself, but calculators are coming in in the, the 60s, you know, the Texas Instruments and whatnot. And they were banned at first, but now we begin to recognize that calculators are going to be there. So maybe your personal assistant is going to be there. And maybe writing papers will not be the standard in higher education. So we need to think about that. We need to think about what expectations we have as technology continues to evolve. So I think we have some interesting times coming up in the next two to three years. Yeah, no, I think that last point is especially interesting around this idea of how do we measure or assess that learning is taking place in an in, in AI-informed um, and, and driven world, and maybe it does radically change how we assess learners. As Ray pointed out, AI is a major factor in data-driven decisions. If you're looking for help with data analytics, we suggest you check out our sponsor. Authentic Learning Labs is an e-learning company that offers products and services to help improve your current investments in education. One key product is Authentic Analytics, a dedicated suite of visualization reports to help analyze and predict the performance of education programs. 
Organizations use authentic analytics to easily scan through volumes of data and intuitive visuals, chart performance trends, and quickly spot opportunities, issues, and potential future needs. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And now, back to the interview as Lisa asks Gray about XR. So to follow up on AI, let's let's get another buzzword in um, extended reality. I would love to get your thoughts on the future of virtual and augmented reality for learning. I think that there are many applications. And so um, we've looked at the low-hanging fruit, although that's not necessarily, in this case, the easiest, but if you will, the most important. And I serve on the Technology Advisory Committee for the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and um, and they're using AI where students can use uh, virtual reality and go through an operation. Let's say you're a surgery resident, you can go through that operation once, twice, and then scrub and go in to uh, the operating room. And I like that idea <laughs> uh, of being able to have just-in-time experience in those kinds of things, but also broadly in learning. So virtual and augmented reality, mixed reality sometimes called, uh, where we put the two together or augmented, um, really work together very well. I recently attended the fourth annual uh, US-China Smart Education Conference, where developers of both those countries began sharing ideas in the fields of VR, uh, AR, AI, and it's fascinating to see what's going on and also some of the cultural differences. Perhaps we'll get a chance to talk about that later. But VR and mixed reality has demonstrated success in the medical field. And Carnegie Mellon particularly has been a leader in this field uh, to assist with anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, um, certainly diagnoses, um, surgery, many other areas. Uh, Mixed reality has a, a significant potential in the in the arts, in history, in sociology, in design, architecture, so many areas where uh, with mixed reality, we can create environments or recreate past environments to help build understanding for our students. And in doing so, they have a deeper cultural understanding as well as um, the architectural, if you will, or art changes over the years. And then distance students, um, of course, that's an area I'm most interested in. Um, one of our challenges has always been, golly, you know, how do you have that laboratory experience? And what about wet labs? Well, you know, what's happening now is that fewer and fewer industries truly have hands-on beakers and test tubes. More often, they're using a computer to titrate those chemicals together. And so that certainly can be replicated, emulated, simulated um, through augmented and virtual reality. And that allows for virtual labs. And that opens up a whole world for students who are seeking um, a degree, a certificate, or learning in fields like nursing and so many other, uh, you know, chemistry and biology, but in so many fields where otherwise they couldn't do it easily at a distance. And yet 
they were not in a personal position where they could leave their family and, you know, and live in the dorm for two years. So, um, so this is a, a really a big breakthrough, virtual labs. And I, I see a tremendous advantage uh, for us all as we move forward. Well, since you raised it as you were talking about you know, mixed reality and these, the potential that you're seeing there, you, you raised the cultural differences. So I want to give you a chance because that did pique my curiosity. What, what do you see as some of the, the key cultural differences um, around the, the, the use of mixed reality for, for learning? Yeah, so as we use mixed reality, it is how do we, uh, what do we use as an example and how does that resonate with the background of our students, mm-hmm. with the aspirations of our students, of what environment they're going to um, become employed in? And there are different environments in different corporations. Certainly, there are less formal, more formal. And in those meetings with the representatives from China, I saw a significant difference in the way in which they approached their uh, development of programs. And that's something that uh, uh, there's been some writing about. Uh, Certainly Amy Webb has a book out uh, just a couple of months ago, The Big Nine, How Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Can Warp Humanity. Well, you know, she had, I think it was six American and three uh, Chinese companies and their different approaches. So I think that there is a big uh, difference culturally uh, and it's not just China. I mean, even within the U.S., it's certainly there. There's there are gender differences. And one of my good colleagues, uh, uh, Yakut Gaziz, who from um, um, Georgia Tech, you know, points out that there are gender differences. And when we look at AI um, uh, and create algorithms, the scenarios presented by male programmers and workers are different than those presented by women. Mm, excellent. Yeah, so thank you for, for highlighting that, that uh, issue around both cultural and gender and just sort of other differences and how those can then be reflected um, through AI and mixed reality and that that's something we need to, to grapple with. So um, I'm not going to give up a chance to get in a few more buzzwords, and so I want to ask about badges and blockchain and in particular, what do you see as the possibilities for badging and blockchain? Do you think they're going to supplement or replace kind of our, our current traditional credentials? I believe they're going to absolutely replace certainly blockchain. Um, badging, I think, is very important. And it's really kind of a building block, if you will, for blockchain itself. So badges first provide more information to employers, to graduate schools, to others, um, in detailing the experience that students document through taking a course or an internship or, uh, or, or a part-time employment experience. But, but the big revolutionary difference comes with blockchain, which is a secure ledger system. Right now, um, if you have a parking ticket um, from a couple of years ago at a college you attended, you may well not be able to get your transcript sent to an employer. It's because the university dominates. It holds tightly your credentials. 
But those are credentials you paid for as a student that you should own, that you should control. And so blockchain will enable you to take your credentials and control them and add to the the classes you took at college, add an internship, add these various other experiences, even self-taught experiences with documentation. And so mostly what blockchain does, it takes, in essence, uh, a, a badge. I mean, it wouldn't have to be formally badged, but it has that level of content information. Maybe uh, uh, for the in the case of a class, it could be your final project. It could be the books you used and some samples, some other samples of your work. And all of that you control on the blockchain. So uh, badging gives you verifiable skills, um, like those soft skills we talked about before. But universities are beginning to recognize the need to document those skills through badges. So, you know, I, I have an article that I think will be out as this is uh, uh, released, and it's on the topic of uh, the advent of blockchain in higher ed. It's an inside higher ed. In brief, blockchain is going to provide a secure ledger for student learning, including those badged experiences and transcripts merged together. The key aspect of the advent of blockchain in higher ed is it will put the transcript into the control of the student rather than the university. And it will be secure and it will outlive <laughs> the university. We've seen a lot of colleges close in the mm. last couple of years. So uh, that blockchain will continue to carry those credentials. Well, great. This has been um, wonderful to talk about some of these uh, trends that are really taking hold, like AI, like mixed reality, like blockchain. Um, but now I just want to kind of open it up and let you um, take us wherever you would like to go. So when you think big picture about what's out there on the horizon for learning in the coming, let's say, five years or so, you know, what most excites you? Well, I'm fascinated with quantum computing. It is in, within five years, and it's really in that three to five year horizon. So quantum computing is you might expect is much faster. And I won't go into the details of qubits, but but they are essentially like bits, uh, binary bits, except they have some neat features. Um, and they're at the base of quantum computing. Um, what currently would take a supercomputer 30 years to complete will be finished in a day on a quantum computer. It's 10,000 times faster than the fastest computers we have today. And then there's this phenomenal um, aspect where qubits can be entangled. You can take qubits and um, entangle them such that if you do something to one, it automatically uh, happens at the other. And then you, a recent experiment was done by sending some qubits into space that have been uh, entangled, they changed them and using atomic clocks, changed them here on Earth and also out on a satellite, and they found that it changed faster than they could uh, calculate. It, they knew it was faster than 10,000 times faster than the speed of light. Huh. Faster than, isn't that incredible? Yeah. And so I'm fascinated by quantum uh, mechanics, but quantum computing in particular, and it's secure. So in that case, we don't even know 
No one today knows how that happens. How does that happen? And so it's secure because you can, you know, let's say your bank account, you can withdraw something here and it changes there, but there's no way to intersect it. So that's that's kind of an interesting aspect. Um, but what that also means is that we're going to be able to more completely um, uh, serve the individual student and reach that holy grail of uh, personalized learning as we use it uh, to drive adaptive learning. Well, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm very intrigued by those qubits as well. Um, and, you know, all along as we've been talking, Ray, you, you've sh- shared um, different book titles and, and different uh, articles, and you put out a lot of content on a daily basis on an array of social uh, media sites and blog sites, and I know you have thousands of, of followers and readers, and so, you know, a lot of what you're doing there is sharing, and you're you're curating that, and so I would love to get your view on um, curation in the context of learning. What role does, does curation play? Yeah, I think that's very important. You know, um, going back to, I don't know, it was the late 80s or thereabouts, early 90s maybe, um, I was teaching a graduate seminar in emerging technologies in the electronic media. And one of the challenges I had was students were not coming up, you know, they had to uh, critique articles, but they didn't come up with very good articles or very current articles. So I began using a listserv and Back then, there was Pyra Labs uh, that was bought out by Google uh, to create Blogger. And so I started with Pyra's Blogger and migrated to Google and uh, began putting things on. And then as the students graduated, someone became faculty members at other universities, but they did not unsubscribe. They continued to follow the blog. And it, I began to realize that this is something broadly that was useful. And since I was doing it every day, I may as well continue. So now I've expanded that a bit. I've got five blogs. There's no advertising, no spam, nothing. You know, it's just out there. Look at it. You can subscribe to it uh, through FeedBurner, which is a Google service, but there are no ads on that either. And so, uh, so it's freely available. But Every day, uh, every evening, usually, I go through 150 articles. I have a little counter, and I try to go through at least 150 news releases, publications, articles, and choose three, for example, in higher ed, um, technology or online and continuing ed is one of the, the blogs. So I choose what I think are three that are important to me as an associate vice chancellor in this area. And I do the same for K-12 and and some other areas. So all of those are out there. I think they're very important. We all don't have the luxury of drinking from that fire hose. So so curating this, because it comes out at such a rapid rate, is, I think, a useful function. And and my goal is not that people cite me, that they just grab one of those articles every week or two and, and send it on to their boss and say, hey, look what I found. And and use it to move forward. So it's not uh, something that that I need, other than putting it up there for consideration, uh, that I need a role in. Well, I think it's a great service. So thank you for for doing that. And um, we'll begin to to wrap up our conversation here. And so as the next to last question, I want to ask you one that we ask of all guests, and it focuses on your personal learning specifically. 
what is one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing up your formal education? Uh, you know, and of course there have been so many, you know, uh, UPCA, UPCA does many, and gosh, there was the uh, um, a, a program on uh, emerging leaders and online learning. Uh, but when I think more recently, it's been the uh, U.S.-China Smart Education Conference that I mentioned previously. It was so remarkable because of the deep discussions among those people who actually were authoring um, the algorithms in China as well as here uh, with corporations from both sides talking to one another as we look at the future of AI and higher ed. So those important discussions, I think, uh, really were meaningful to me. Well, that's great. Um, so final question, just if listeners want to know more about you and, and your work or connect with you, where would you have them go? I have a small website. It's rayschroeder.com. And uh, at that site, I have links to those blogs and to Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, where I put out the, this feed, these feeds rather, of uh, curated reading lists. And, uh, and there's also, you can click to contact and I uh, check my email every 20 minutes. So, <laughs> so, and, and, of course, if you text me, I'll do the same. So uh, it's always great to make new connections. Well, great. We'll make sure to get that uh, website into the show notes. Ray, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all that you've shared. Thank you. That concludes the interview with Ray Schroeder. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 193. When you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, Jeff and I would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing with the podcast. Yes, please do hit that subscribe button. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. All you have to do is go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. Salise and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but more importantly, reviews and ratings play a big role in helping the podcast show up when people are searching for content on leading a learning business. And we would be grateful if you check out our sponsors for this quarter. Find out more about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And find out what Com Partners has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash compartners. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. And you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leading lifelong learning. And of course, you can share us with others there. However you do it, please spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.